Let's pray together. Father, we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it's so easy for many of us who've been in a church all our lives to sort of tune certain words out and to say, I, I already know that. And yet, at the same time, our lives manifest that we don't know it because the, the signs are not there. The evidence is not there. Our tendency, Lord, is to intellectually assent but not really trust, not put our weight on. We dabble. We want magic. We want it to be easy. And yet, as we've been studying together joy and we've been studying peace together and now we're studying self-control, we're realizing that if a person wants to be peaceful, there's a cost. If a person wants to live in joy, there's a cost. And that we have to be the ones who begin to say, this is worth it to me. Everyone around us can say, you need this, but I have to decide I need it. Your spirit is here today. You're working. I can, I can feel you so strongly. Part of me just wants to lay on the floor and just pray. Because your, your presence is thick. But I also sense that the clash between your desire for us and our desires for ourselves. As for me, Lord, all the things of my flesh have never satisfied me. All the things that were easy, all the things that were distractions, all the things that were obsessions, they were all sabotaged. And the woundedness and the brokenness of my heart, you have poured out your love. And it is sweet. But in my brokenness, in my woundedness, I haven't always been able to contain very much of that love. I'm asking today that, Lord, in our woundedness and our brokenness, you would come. And you would restore. And you would rebuild. And that we wouldn't hide under the, under the light of your eyes and that we would allow ourselves to say I, I don't want to keep doing this I don't want to keep going this way I want something more I want something different come Holy Spirit for Jesus sake Amen Will you read this scripture with me? We read it last week, but I'd like you to read it again with me. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body 
and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The Apostle Paul is a master teacher, and, and he's being carried here by, along by the Holy Spirit, who's inspiring these very words. And yet, at the same time, they are words that are coming out of his experience in life. He's giving you the secret to being able to be the person that you always wanted to be and always the Spirit has been calling you to be. He's giving you the secret for how to be the very best version of yourself. Paul's probably at least one of the top five most influential people that have ever lived. And he's telling you under the inspiration of the Spirit, but also from his own life, this is how you do it. And so we begin to see that there's this master illustration about the athlete. And how a world-class athlete, even in Paul's day, who was preparing for the Olympic Games or the Panhellenic Games, how they would so discipline themselves, they would so control themselves, they would be in such command of themselves that every single thing in their life was funneling towards their victory. Now, he also explains that these who have done this with such passion and have done it with such focus have done it to win a crown that in a few days turns brown and is no longer worth anything. And then he compares us to them, and he says, having already said this in Galatians, his letter to the Galatians, having already said that when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and when you are in vital union with the very Spirit of God and the presence of God, one of the manifestations or one of the signs that you are in that union is that you will be self-controlled. Or you will be, the Greek word is ego gratia, you will be in command of yourself. So one of the signs of the Spirit is the manifestation that your inside and your outside are one. That you're not hiding, you're not masking, you're not disingenuous, you're doing things because your passions are in order and your loves are in order. Now, I didn't, I didn't grow up with any kind of teaching like this, truthfully, and many of you didn't either, and you didn't realize that you weren't taught this because what you saw was usually a reflection of two extremes. And I grew up in one extreme, and that extreme was emotions are bad. So in the church I grew up in, any expression of emotion was called emotionalism and was therefore to be avoided. So the church services that I grew up in, everyone sat in their pew like a lump of coal and did not move. They didn't say anything. If you said anything, you were asked to leave and never come back. Even as a kid, there was also, my father had what I call the no twitching rule. And you would have to sit and not twitch. And if you got twitched, you got switched. You know, and you had to sit there and you had, you know, and you're a little kid and your feet don't even touch the ground, which gives you incredible desire to swing those feet 
and to kick those pews which make really loud noises when you're having to wear your Sunday shoes, which pinch and hurt and you don't like. You know, so there's all, there's all kinds of emotion in that building. But it's all masked. It's all hidden. And if there's any expression of it, it's punished. Even punished in a sense with words, that's just emotionalism. It's not genuine. We need to be emotionless. Very interesting to be passionate without emotion. You're singing these incredible songs of passion with no passion. And the other thing is, all those people who sat like lumps of coal in their pews, in their everyday life, they were filled with emotion. They were cheating on their wives. Even the pastor, the pastor who led my church where I was a youth, he was having an affair for nine years of my years in his, under his uh, direct, uh, direction. So he had lots of emotion, lots of passion, just wasn't happening in the right place. You understand what I'm saying? To just deny emotion, to just hide it, to just stuff it, to just suppress it is not self-control. It takes no supernatural transformation to do that. Anybody can do it. All you have to do is live in denial. And it doesn't produce a oneness of spirit. Now, on the other hand, some of you grew up in the opposite, where it was all emotion. It's funny, I I remember going to this one place one time, and the same sister came up for prayer every week, got slain in the spirit every week, got delivered from whatever demon every week. And it was at the same time in every service. After a while, you look at it and go, there's something not right about that. I mean, she was full of emotion. Amen, hallelujah, you know, just screaming. And then she went out and found some man to sleep with after the service. Or then she didn't pay her bills. Or then she got fired from her job. Or she couldn't even seem to function in society. But every week... She was full of emotion. And anybody could look at that, especially the lumps of coal could look at that and say, look, I don't want to be that. That's emotionalism. And discount everything because of, because of the falseness and the disingenuousness of somebody who comes and manipulates emotion and works up emotion, but then it never seems to have any kind of change in their life. Let me tell you, you try to get in the middle, it's still not going to work. I'm going to have some emotion, I'm going to have some not emotion. It doesn't work. What we're talking about can only be a supernatural transformation where you have met real love. And that real love and the beauty of that real love transforms you to where you begin to say, this is what matters to me. This is the passion of my life. This is the love. You think about it. There's a church in Revelation, very well known, that they fought the good fight. They maintained doctrinal purity. They 
They fought against all heresies and deceptions. And Jesus said, I saw all that you did, but I have this one thing against you. And basically what he's saying is you have disordered passion. You have disordered love. Because you've lost your first love. It's so easy to lose your first love. It's so easy to get caught up in the pain of your life. It's so easy to get caught up in where people are offending you. It's so easy to get caught up in the stresses that are overwhelming you. It's so easy to get caught up in the agendas that you think, if I just get these results, I'll be safe. If God's not going to help me, I'll do it myself. And you begin to think, if I, if I just have this, or I just do this, or I just do that. And what you have to come to the place, if you really, really want to see supernatural transformation, is basically you have to come to the place of saying that life in the Spirit is recognizing that the life you have in the flesh does not work. That no matter how talented you are, educated you are, how much property or, or, or how much uh, uh, you know, financial resources you have, that none of that is enough to satisfy the hunger in your soul. So the picture that I have is this. You ever, you ever left a McDonald's cup with Coca-Cola or soda or something in your car? If you leave it for a few days, when you pick the cup up, you have the cup, but you have nothing, le- all the sodas in your cup holder. And you can never refill that cup. Because all it's going to do is just pour out, pour out, the bottom's falling out, the sides seeping out. See, when we come to the Lord and when we come into a relationship with God, what we have is a McDonald's cup for a heart. All the good stuff pours in, but all the good stuff seeps out. We are not able to contain his love. We're not able to contain his joy. He does these amazing things in our life. If you come here every week and you hang out with us here, God shows up every week and he's here with love for you. And he's here singing over you right now. Jesus is moving in our midst, singing over you because he loves you so. But if you've got a McDonald's cup, you'll feel it, you'll experience it, but because the cup cannot contain it, it'll just seep out. And all you'll have is kind of, kind of this sludge at the bottom. So what's left in the cup is usually shame, anger, unforgiveness, anxiety, worry. And then you, you easily begin to question, am I really saved? Did God really move in my heart that way? Because I can't seem to sustain it. And even people who get delivered, we found this over the years, that we've seen people who get delivered from the demonic. There were demonic manifestations in their life, there was demonic supercharging of strongholds in their life, and we see them get delivered, and then they go back, right back to the things they did before. Part of it is because all they have, it seems, is a heart that's like a McDonald's cup. That they experience things, and they love the experience, but then they, they're not transformed. They're not changed. They don't make those steps. You see, what we're talking about today 
is that this self-control, this command of self, is the very backbone of your spiritual muscles. It's the, it's the foundation of your ability to contain all the love that God is pouring out on you. I mean, you could spend the rest of your life with this McDonald's cup and say, oh, no one loves me, no one cares for me. And those kinds of statements seem very real and very much uh, powerful when your cup's empty. Because in an empty cup and with it spilled out all over the place, it's just so easy to say, no one loves me, I'm all alone, I have no power, I don't, nothing ever seems to change for me. And then it becomes really easy to then act on that lie and then go about trying to meet your own needs yourself. And then wonder, wondering why, why is it that I feel so far from God? Well, part of the reason is whether your cup's empty or it's full. He's never saying those things to you. Whether your cup's empty or full, he's always saying to you, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I will never leave you or forsake you, but it takes command of self to accept those words as true instead of believing I'm all alone. No one looks out for me but me. See, the empty cup seems to be like the reverberation of of all of those lies that you've believed about yourself, all of the rejection that you've felt, or the betrayals, or the disappointments. They all seem to line up to say, no one cares for me. I can trust no one. I have to look out for myself. It's interesting that when the cup stays like that McDonald's cup, it can't trust anything because itself is not trustworthy. Only as you begin to realize, I don't want to live out of the McDonald's cup. There's a promise of God. There's a, a new covenant from God that as we come to Jesus in faith, as we come to God through Jesus in faith, he exchanges our McDonald's cup for a new heart. A heart that is able and has the capacity to experience all the love of God. Exchange in many ways your finiteness and your limitations for his limitlessness. But it's a choice. Everything will come against you. You think about the illustration that Paul is making here. He's using a race. Have any of you ever done any athletic contest? One of the first temptations of every athletic contest is to give up. It's too hard. I'm going to lose. I used to play uh, tournament tennis, and uh, my claim to fame is I I lost to John McEnroe in the U.S. Clay Court Championships. And I grew up playing in 100-degree weather, and often with 90% or more humidity. And this was before Gatorade. (laughs) And it was in the days when coaches used to tell you not to drink much water because it would give you cramps. And I can remember many times in a match 
playing against a, a really good opponent, and you just start hearing, it's too hot. It's too hard. You know, give up. Give in. I remember my, uh, I was in the state championship, um, in the quarterfinals of the state championship, and I was playing this guy, and he just was running me all over the court. And, and we went three sets, and I'd already played two matches before that. And we went three sets, and it was five all in the third set. And we had both, the first two sets had gone to tiebreakers. And it was five all in the third set, and I'm dying. It's Jackson, Mississippi, which is incredibly hot and incredibly humid. And, you know, there's just so much temptation to say it's not worth it. Just not worth it. And then, and then you find this voice inside that said, you trained for this. This is your senior year. This is what you've wanted all your life. And so the passion overrides the temptation. And you get your passion in order, and then your body begins to say, I can do this. And the other guy cramps, and I beat him 7-5. It's only like 40 years ago. But it, those of you who you understand what I'm saying is nothing that you're truly passionate about comes without a cost. And it's only when you decide, this is my passion, that it will override all of the costs, all of the environment, all the circumstances, even your own body, which seems to betray you in some moments. I mean, in some ways, what we're talking about with this self-control being a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in, in your life is that you begin to understand that having a divided heart is a disaster. I mean, it's as simple as I gave you last week, the, the illustration, but it's so important that if you, just, if you are torn in your heart and you're saying, I love chocolate ice cream, but I want to be skinny, your heart is going to do this. It's going to, when it's empty and everything is leaked out of your McDonald's cup, it's going to say, I deserve chocolate ice cream. Not just a, a bite. I deserve every bit that's in the house. And watch out, stop and shop. You know? <laughs> but then as you're eating it, you start cursing yourself. I'm fat. I'm unhealthy. And so here you are chasing your passion for chocolate ice cream and cursing yourself while you chase it. In some ways, I mean, if you want to know the truth, I mean, this, this is not pretty. But men and women, we can't on the one hand say, I want to be a man of God, I want to be a woman of God, but I'm also going to give myself to pornography. Because the two don't go together. On the one hand, I'm saying, I find life in the illicit. I find life in the counterfeit. I want my fantasy. But I love God. 
They don't go together. Probably be better if you just say, I just want to be a pornographer. Because then your heart wouldn't be divided. But then see, Luther was, Martin Luther was so smart. He said, well, when you're going to sin, sin boldly. You know why he said that? Because once you get it out and you say it, it sounds as dirty and nasty as can be. And you realize, that's not my passion. Is my passion to spend all of my time masturbating to fantasy? Is that my passion? Is that what I want to define me? Oh, but you don't understand how empty my cup is. You don't understand. I, I've got this McDonald's cup of a heart. And the only way I can get any relief or distraction is in the illicit things of this world. And I'm saying to you, do you hear that lie? Do you hear that lie? Is that what your passion is for? Is that what he's given you a heart for? Is that what he wants to empower your puny little excuse for life? Oh, but it doesn't stop there. Suppose that you're, you're a workaholic and your passion is your work. And you're wondering, why doesn't everybody else line up? Because this is important to me. I've got to make money. I've got to pay my mortgage. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And you spend all your time worrying. So you, you maybe laugh at the person who sits in front of their computer screen and uses their, their creative energy in that way. But here you are using all your creative energy for things that are nothing but perishable. And that we've seen can be wiped out in a minute. And all you're doing is using God to try to be the the henchman for your plan. And then you wonder, why don't I feel closer to God and why don't I feel closer to people? Or maybe, you know, you're just giving up altogether and you say, I have no passion. I'm just going to sit on the couch. I'm going to watch TV or I'm just going to, I'm going to veg. None of those. None of those are worthy of you. None of those are worthy. You don't have to live with fake emotions. You don't have to live with suppressed emotions. He wants to change your heart. I had this, this vision in the first service, and I didn't have it till afterwards when we were praying, but I started praying with people, and people were, were seeing their hearts as this kind of McDonald cup where everything good seeps out. And then we saw the old-fashioned milkshake holder. I don't, know if, I don't know about you. I mean, again, here we are with chocolate ice cream, I guess. But uh, I don't know about you, but, but one of the cool things is, is not to get the, your milkshake already in the cup, but to get it at an old-fashioned place where they fill that thing all the way to the full, and it fills one cup, and then it fills another cup. Now, that's what I felt like the Lord was saying is, not only do I want to strengthen your heart, but I want to increase your capacity. So that before you could not even hold what I had for you, but now you have an abundance. And it's sustainable. See, that's what this self-control is. That's why... This is the very skeleton of your spiritual body. This is, this is the backbone of everything that will make you a warrior for Christ. But without it, 
You're a jellyfish. You've got nothing to stand on. See, you can spend the rest of your life overcome by emotion or denying emotion, and Jesus will still love you. And you will still be an object of his grace and his mercy, but you won't experience the fullness of that because you don't have a capacity for it. Now, does this make sense to you a little bit? Now, in verse 23, we didn't read verse 23, but in verse 23, Paul explains his motivation for having self-control. And I, I find it very powerful how he's motivated. Because I could, I could very easily say to you, you should be motivated to have self-control because you'll be a better person. And I could say to you, you should be motivated for self-control because if you're, if you're a self-controlled person, you'll get more done. But that's not Paul's motivation. In verse 23, he says his motivation for being self-controlled like an Olympic athlete is that by being self-controlled, he is able to share the good news of Jesus Christ. This is his motivation. Now, let me, let me go deeper because the word share in English can be a weak word. But in Greek, it is actually a very strong word and has complex meaning. It actually, in this case, has two meanings, two aspects. The first aspect of to share, in other words, the motivation for having self-control, the thing that drives him to win the race is because he wants to share with others what he already has. Now, all of us understand that aspect of sharing is that unless you have something, you can't share it with somebody else. And the, the beauty of what Paul's talking about here absolutely destroys religiosity. Because you're not going to be motivated to share something that makes you miserable. You're not going to be motivated to share something that's fake. You're only going to be motivated to share something that has wowed you. For example, any of us in this room with anybody we love, we're sitting there and we go, oh, this tastes great. And immediately you want them to taste it because you want to hear them go, wow. Or you're listening to music. You know, and you've got your earphones on, and you've got music, and you're like, this is great music, and you, you know, you thrust it into somebody else's ear and break their eardrum. <laughs> or like some people do, they're like, you should see this video, and they make you sit there and watch that video, you know? <laughs> None of my staff, well, take it back. Uh, you know, if you love something, you see, if you love something, you don't, no one has to say, witness. If you love it, you go, this is real to me. This is my passion. I don't care if you like it or not. I'm going to stick my iPod in your ear. You're going to watch this YouTube, you know, and you're going to like it because I like it. That's the idea here, right? But the problem with religion is you got nothing from that. If it's just morality... If it's just being good, that's, that might be discipline, 
and you restraining yourself is good for you, but it's of no value in motivating you to real self-control. Self-control is only a motivation in your life when you begin to love something so much that you're focused on that. And you see, God is very interesting. He could have said to you, obey me with all your mind, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, because you could obey him and not love him. Because many of us in this room obey people we don't love. Because we don't want to get in trouble. And some of you, you know, you disobey because you don't love too. But when you love someone, nothing they ask of you is too much. I mean, when you're in love with somebody and they say, oh, would you, would you get me a cup of water? You go and get them champagne, you know? I mean, you just, you, you want to give them everything, not just the minimum. Well, when I was first learning to do deliverance, there was a, a team of people who were doing deliverance and doing healing prayers. And I, I wanted to learn from them. And many of them were PhDs and teachers from seminaries. And they were, they were very highly educated people on this team. And there was this one person that stood out on the team, and she was only 18 years old. Everybody else was probably in their 40s, 50s, 60s. This, there was this one 18-year-old. And as you watch, this 18-year-old saw more healings, more deliverances than any of those trained professionals. And so the question came to her and said, why are you so effective in healing ministry? Why are you so effective in deliverance? And she says, well, you know, I, I lived my life and no one loved me. I lived on the streets. I didn't finish school. I lived promiscuously. I slept with whoever and anyone who would give me any attention. She said, I just lived as if I was worthless and no one cared about me and no one cared for me until I met Jesus. And she said, Jesus loves me like no one has ever loved me before. And I just want to follow him. And in his presence, he told me that I should lay hands on the sick and I should cast out demons. So she said, this is an 18-year-old, she said, so I went to my pastor and said, would it be okay if I do that? And my pastor said it was okay. So I just started laying hands on the sick and casting out demons. But I only do it because the one who loves me, the first one who's ever loved me, asked me to do it. You see, I mean, all of us can get trained and all of us can get better skills at things, but nothing will ever take the place of the transforming capacity of saying, I am loved. I'm valuable to someone. And then to turn that love around and say, because you love me, I will endure the pain. I will face the emptiness of my cup. I will not just keep running away. And and on top of that, because you are so loving and you are so beautiful, I'm going to tell everybody, I'm going to stick that earphone right in their ear. I'm going to make them watch that video. 
And I'm not going to care because I love you and you love me and I want them to know you. See, you can't do that out of religion. You can only do that if you've met love. And then you want to share it. Well, that, that's the one piece of sharing, of self-control and of being motivated to say, let me have my cup rebuilt, is to share the good news. But the second one is this. What Paul means by this is that the emotionless expression is inadequate. The over-emotional expression, the fake and disingenuous stuff is inadequate. What he's saying here is, I want it to be so that whether you see me in my car or you see me in my bathroom or you see me in front of crowds of people, that you would see the exact same person at all times because the gospel has penetrated my life in such a way that it penetrates the way I do finances, it penetrates the way I, I handle my learning, my reading, my school, whatever. It handles the way I submit to my boss. It handles and speaks to the way I treat my children, my wife, my husband, so that there is not an area of my life that if you peel back the curtain that you would say, there's no gospel there. See, this is the one that touches me the deepest because I would love, I would love above all else that in every area of my life you would just be able to pull back whatever veil, whatever, whatever thing I present and you just, all you would see is the gospel. You would see in my finances how I love Jesus. You would see in my sexual life how I love Jesus. You would see in my speech how I love Jesus. You would see how I treat someone who can do nothing for me, how patiently because I love Jesus. How I handle obstacles and, and curveballs and life that doesn't go the way I want it to go because I love Jesus. You see, or you could have people, and there are people who say, I love Jesus, but I also want to do this. I love Jesus, but money's really important to me. I love Jesus, but you know, Jesus doesn't mind if I go have bunches of sexual partners. Or if I have sex outside of marriage, he doesn't mind. You know, there's grace. And, and, and we can believe those lies, but see, what's happening is you are diminishing your capacity. You're diminishing. You're not... I mean, the, the funny thing is that some people have used and said, well, if you sin, you lose your salvation, and they want to make it so harsh, you know, so that somehow they'll control you behaviorally. You know you what? You can control people's behavior. You can't control their hearts. Either their hearts are enamored and in love with Jesus, or their behavior is false. And when you're in love with Jesus, your behavior follows. It follows. You begin to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because you trust him. In many ways, you cannot, in the biblical sense, you cannot separate the mind from the emotions. The biblical idea of heart always has both because passion has to have both. You cannot be passionate about something your mind rejects. Nor can you be passionate about something your heart has not given itself to. 
well, why would I want to do all this? If you remember that, the illustration is running. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it's also about running. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There's something personal, and I hope it helps you, but it's very personal to me as I've been going through this, is that I realized two things from these two passages. The one is this. I don't have a lot of control over how many talents I have. I don't have a lot of control over how much gifting I have. God seems to apportion talents and gifts according to his wisdom. And though sometimes many of us may dream, wouldn't it be great if I was the greatest this ever? Very few of us are that. But he has given us these gifts, and he's given us these talents. The second thing that I seem to have very little control over is what he says here, I have very little control over the race that is set before me. Now, I can complain about the race, and I can say, boy, I wish I were in a warmer climate. Or I can say, you know, I don't like the people I'm racing with. Or I can say, I don't like the resources I have for the race. I can do all of that, but I, what I've found is you don't really get to change the race. Am I making sense to you? Like, you can spend the rest of your life fantasizing about the race you never got to run. You know, about the parents you wish you had, or the wife, or the husband you wish you had, or the children you wish you had. But in some way, shape, or form, the Bible says the race that is before you is the race God wants you to run. And you can run away, and this is the amazing thing, is that wherever you run, you go with you. (laughs) And so the race may change venues, but it still seems to be the same race. I mean, I've watched people divorce people and marry the exact same person they just divorced. And I'm sitting there going, do you not see this? I guess they didn't. And so all of this stuff, you know, there are things here that are not going to change no matter how much I complain. But I can get to a place where I go, God, the talents you've given me, the experiences you've given me, you know, the skills that you've given me, all of this, this is to your glory, and I can yield it to him. And then I can say, this is my assignment. This is my race. He's not going to let up till I run it. And then what happens is, see, then what I have control over is capacity. Because in many ways, our capabilities are limited, but our capacity is not. Now, remember what Gabe said earlier about the loaves and the fishes. The capacity were a, a couple of fish and a few loaves. You know, I mean, the capability, that's all there was. That's all the resource they had. But there were 5,000 people, so Jesus had the capacity to take what they were capable of and feed 5,000. 
So when I begin to open up my cup and I begin to strengthen my soul and I begin to strengthen my heart so that it can contain his capacity, then my capabilities are not such an issue anymore. And instead of hearing I'm going to fail, instead of feeling fear, I begin to hear the voice of the Lord through his word say, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Well, how do I, you know, how do I hear that voice? Well, I think it's it's key here. See, most of our problems, I'm always looking at the race, I'm looking at the resources, I'm looking at myself. If I look at those things, it all appears inadequate. The race seems like it'll go on forever. The resources don't seem like they'll actually be enough, and I don't feel like enough. And so the writer says, "Look to Jesus." And why does he say it? Because he's already run the race. Now think about this with me, and I'll I'll close with this. What did Jesus have after the cross that he didn't have before the cross? See, you could say, some people say, well, he had the love of God. He had the love of God before the cross. Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He had that. You say, well, what about the glory of God? Was, was the joy that was set before him, was it the glory of God? No, he had the glory of God. He said, the Father said, I, I am glorifying you and I will glorify you. What did he not have after the cross that he had before that put a joy that was not circumstantial, a joy that made Jesus run to the cross, not run from the cross, Well, it's really clear, isn't it? You probably got it. The joy was you. Why did Jesus run to the cross? He saw your face. Why did He stay on the cross? He saw your face. I'm not saying He wasn't denying the pain. I mean, He... It's clear he was in pain. It's clear that he groaned with you know, deep, deep groans from the inside out. But it's really clear from the scriptures that there was also a smile on his heart because of you. He ran the race for the joy set before him and you were that joy. That's why, I mean... I mean, I've heard preaching my whole life, and when I've heard those angry, mean preachers, I'm like, you don't know Jesus. You don't know him. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's the love of God that takes the McDonald's cup and gives you a milkshake holder. Now, I have felt this so deeply today that I'm almost, I have to tell you, I'm almost afraid of it. Because some of you are going to go, that's nice. This is a pearl. This is why you take two steps forward, fall three steps back. This is why you're agitated. This is why you say, I love God, but I'm anxious. I love God, but I'm depressed. I love Jesus, but I'm sexually promiscuous. I love God, but I can't quit drinking my alcohol. I love God, but I need a cigarette right now. This is why. is because you don't have this spine of your spirit. 
And today the Lord wants you to have it. And he wants you to have it for the rest of your days. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And there may be some repenting that you need to do. But before you do that, I'm going to ask you, would you, would you follow me in this? And would you, would you let the Spirit show you that McDonald's cup? You know, he's wanted to fill you over and over again, and you've, you've, you've seen his love, you've seen his joy, and it all seeps out. And you listen to the lies and you run after things that will kill you, destroy you, or steal from you. Maybe your emotions have been out of control or maybe your emotions have been nothing but suppressed. But today the Lord's saying, I want you to be able to share from the inside out. I want you to be able to share my love. I want you to be so transformed by the gospel that... If they look at your heart, they see me. So I'm going to ask you just to open your hands up. Or maybe, you know, the the milkshake cup type thing, maybe that doesn't fit for you today, but it, it sure, for some reason, that was really powerful in the first service. Maybe because in a way they could see their heart had become strong and their capacity had become greater. But you know, you got to give up the old paper cup. You got to say, that's not my heart anymore. That's not who I am. I'm not someone where the love spills out. I'm someone where the love is filled up. That I have, I have this race to run. I have this. I have these capabilities in my life. I I don't want to run aimlessly. I don't want to box the air. I want to run for the prize. And I'll give you one more reason to let go of the McDonald's cup. Your Savior, the Lord Jesus, he wore a perishable crown for you. It was a crown made of thorns. It was a crown to mock him. He wore that perishable crown. He who deserved the crown of life and he who alone deserves the crown of life wore the crown of thorns. And he did it with joy in his heart because he saw he was doing it for you. And that crown of life that is his, he's given to you. That perishable crown he wore so you could wear an imperishable crown. This is who we are. We're not the beggars of the world. We're not the poor, the lost. We're not the sinners anymore. We're the sons and daughters of the Most High God. We're the the recipients of a new covenant. He's taken out that McDonald's heart. And he's given us a heart where he wrote his own name on it. And he took what was ugly and what was sludge-like, and he took what was shameful, and he said, I love you. You don't have to hide from me, he says. You can trust me.
I'd like to ask you just to renounce that old heart with me. Sometimes you could call it your flesh, your old man, your old woman. Just say, that's not the center of who I am anymore. Let's say it together. I renounce renounce that old heart. That old heart heart full of holes. (laughs) I think the demons don't like this. Do we know what? There we go. All right. Well, you know the enemy's here. Okay? He can't get at you, so he goes after technology. Okay? All right, he knows you're doing something significant. Now, again, as you do this, you may not understand all of it, but as much as you understand what you're doing is you're yielding your heart. Yeah. I want you to understand this. Your heart is not just your emotion. It is the place where you connect to the life of God. Your heart is the place of your commitments, your true commitments. It's the place where you decide what you trust. And I'm saying to you, I know what the fleshly things do. I know what the illicit things do. They're real. They're appealing. But the way that they lead to is destruction. And I'm saying, I will not, I will not give myself to those things anymore. My passion is for the one who has passion for me. If I was his joy, then he now is my joy. So will you say this with me? I renounce renounce the old heart. heart. I'm tired of the old McDonald's cup. I receive that new cup today. I thank you, Lord, for all my capabilities. But I need capacity. I need your limitless supply. I choose to run the race. And to run it to win. You understand why I'm saying it this way? Because we have emotion right now. And emotion is good, but we need commitment to strengthen our hearts and to say, even if this kills me, I'm going to do it. And in some ways, it will kill some of you. It'll kill the anxiety. It'll kill the anger. It'll kill the depression. It'll kill the old habits that you thought you could never overcome. Because what's coming into your heart is, I am reckoning myself dead to sin. And I am alive to God. He who began a good work in me, he's going to complete it. He who began this work is faithful. And that which I have entrusted to him, to him he will hold on to, to the very end, to the day of the redemption. They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint.
I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And I am convinced that nothing in this world can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is what our hearts hold on to. He is the joy set before us. We receive this now, Lord. We receive this impartation of your word, of your heart. Our hearts for your heart. Your heart for our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing together. We have some prayer ministers that are going to come forward. I do think some of you need to make a commitment today, and you need to tell somebody else about it. I think some of the marriages, you need to make a commitment. That lack of self-control is going to kill your marriage. It'll kill your parenting because you'll give in and give up before you win the battle. Friendships, all of these things, work, everything. The gospel needs to penetrate every area of your life. Would you come up and would you seal this day and this moment, your heart for God's heart, God's heart for your heart. The old McDonald cup gone. A new heart in its place. Capacity there. The Lord is here very powerfully. I could stay here all day because he's so thick here. Would you make this your day of renewal? A day of covenant with the Lord. This is what my heart commits to this day. And say it to someone else. It makes a difference. Gabe's going to close us in a song, but would you come on and pray with these prayer ministers?